This is Living Catholic with Father Don Wolf. Living Catholic is a fresh look at issues confronting each of us today. This show deals with living out the Catholic faith, what that means for Catholics, as well as the impact on the rest of society. You certainly don't have to be Catholic to enjoy this show. And now, your host, Father Don Wolf. Welcome, Oklahoma, to Living Catholic. I'm Father Don Wolf, pastor of Sacred Heart Parish in Oklahoma City and rector of the Shrine of Blessed Stanley Rother. A couple of weeks ago, the Catholic World News reported that the Alaska Department of Corrections had barred the celebration of Mass at its prisons because it will not allow wine at the prison for any reason and in any amount. This, of course, makes Mass impossible, wine being the necessary ingredient for a valid celebration of the sacrament. No provision was allowed for Catholics or for any other reason. All alcohol prohibited. No exceptions. That's the rule. Now, that's not especially newsworthy. It does set a precedent, and it turns a page in the history of church-state relations in the Great North. It was reported in the news service because it complicates the work of the church as it tries to provide sacraments to those incarcerated there. Not only that, it makes any appeal to the common practice of the church something ruled out of bounds for consideration by the state. Using wine for mass isn't something dreamed up 10 minutes ago. It's a more well-established and of greater provenance than the acknowledgement of the existence of the North American landmass in European civilization. In the sum of the decision, there are many sets of imbalances that make for some uncomfortable conclusions when it comes to being a Catholic in Alaska. But other than these esoteric concerns about the relationship of the church and the state at this time, Alaska is certainly not alone in its complicated relationships to the question. I've been a prison chaplain at four different prisons in Oklahoma, three state and one federal, and all of them have created major difficulties at different times when it comes to celebrating Mass with the inmates. And this difficulty is a subset of the general difficulties the entire state has had with Catholics and Mass and alcohol. The state of Oklahoma has had a contentious relationship with the Catholic Church from the beginning of statehood. One aspect of this contention was the use of alcohol, wine, at Mass. It took a major court case to finally settle the question of whether the church could have wine in order to celebrate Mass. While the ban on the use of alcohol was general and the church was asking for an exception, it was an important moment in the life of the church here in the state. In fact, the the law that existed at that time would have made the valid celebration of Mass a seditious event in contravention of the law of the land. So winning that court case was important. But this concession on the part of the state didn't always filter down to the local levels. At least there were still major difficulties when bringing wine into the prisons I served in the 80s and 90s into the 2000s. At one point, I carried a photocopied letter signed by the director of the Department of Corrections, giving me specifically permission to enter the prisons with the wine we needed in order to have mass. On occasion, even that wasn't enough for the guards there, who kept me from entering with the wine I brought along. It hasn't been easy here in Oklahoma. And I'm not talking about bringing a gallon jug with me. Normally, I carried less than an ounce. In fact, it's just enough for me to consume in my chalice and nothing more. In the case of my time at Oklahoma State Reformatory, in which I had mass at several different locations within the prison walls, it was a bit more, but not much. The most difficult part of coming to the prison was getting through security, of course. I never knew from one week to the next whether I was going to be admitted or not. 
I would always arrive with my box or bag, carrying the materials and vestments I needed for Mass. Sometimes the guard would wave me through without once looking at what I had. Other times, he'd go through my material piece by piece and then he'd have me go through the metal detector. Once, I had to take off my shirt in order to get onto the prison grounds. I never knew if it was the personal concerns of the guards or changing policies or just a chance for a bit of entertainment. But in several of the places I went to, there was never the same procedure to get in twice. And always, they asked me about the wine I carried. Only once did I have to cancel because I wasn't allowed onto the grounds. It was the time after that I began carrying the letter from the director of the Department of Corrections. In case I needed to appeal to some higher authority, I could get in, but it wasn't easy. I understand their concerns. The guards are responsible for the welfare and behavior of the prisoners under their watch. There are endless scams and manipulation that are going on to circumvent whatever security efforts they're enforcing. Everybody is a potential threat to undermining their authority and effectiveness. They have to be vigilant, and there was no special reason to trust me. In several of the places where I served, the guards were most likely not Catholic, the surrounding area being almost devoid of the church. So they had no notion of what was necessary for what we were doing at Mass. All they knew, for the most part, was that my arrival and the material I was carrying didn't fit into the guidelines they had. It's a lesson for all of us, one that reaches into a great many parts of our collective lives together and one we should learn from. The first is that we should work to build as much trust as possible with those we work with in order to bring the sacraments to the people with whose care we are entrusted. It was always a hassle going to the prison, partly because of the obstructiveness of the guards, but remaining consistent and willing to go through the pettiness of their concerns was worth it for the prisoners. The mission wasn't about me or the church in some sort of global sense. It was about the bringing the presence of Christ to those in prison who longed to receive him. Lesson number one, keep coming. Lesson number two is less salutary, and it's this. Big institutions don't know how to be subtle or flexible. It seems that a very large organization doesn't know how to be smart or nimble or even informed. To make a policy is to exercise the reality that a large group of people, like a prison, that operate according to centralized policies exercised in a top-down fashion in their organizational structure seem only to be able to do one thing at a time, and it seems like it can't do anything else. While that's a bit extreme, prisons do all kinds of things for all kinds of people at all and all at the same time. There are those situations in which rigidity excludes even the most logical and sensible thing. And that's what I experienced. Of course, what to do with an ounce of wine is a pretty minor and inconsiderable concern in an organization dealing with thousands of employees and many more thousands of inmates in a system that involves hundreds of millions of dollars. Except if you're a Catholic chaplain, the Catholic bishop, or a Catholic inmate, it's not a minor concern. It's an interruption of the most basic access to the sacramental life, and it matters. There is a gap between what is recognized and responded to and what is misunderstood or underappreciated. This gap takes a long time to be filled and usually involves a gigantic outpouring of energy, as it recently did in Alaska. Highly centralized organizations have a hard time. We should remember this when we continually imagine the function of these organizations, highly centralized, mandated, and necessary, issuing guidelines and procedures as part of their operation, when we imagine how to address the concerns of our day and time. 
We've all heard the stories of the $1,000 screwdriver or the $10,000 toilet seat when dealing with what is one of the most centralized organizations anywhere, the military. They have their place and we need them, but there are some things they can do well and others not so much. My favorite story comes from a cousin of mine who was in the Air Force in the 1950s. At that time, he was a mechanic working with the new B-47 bomber. This bomber was the cutting edge of technology in all the world of aviation. There was no plane like it anywhere else. And because of its superiority to every other airplane out there, the Air Force wanted as many of them as they could get, and they were willing to pay premium prices for them. But the tools to work on them came out of another budget, and there was never enough of them. So while the strategic decision makers were filling up the hangars and flight lines with as many bombers as they could buy, maintenance chiefs had to have mechanics on the planes share their toolboxes with one another since there was never enough to go around. They had to share wrenches with each other as they worked on the bomber side by side. Go figure. It works out that way in organizations. We ought to remember that. The third aspect of these kinds of situations is what happens when everyone wants things to work despite what the guidelines are. And that's what happened more times than not. When I faced the obstructions uh, of the obstructions of the rules that keep keeping my tiny wine bottle out of the prison chapel, many of the guards and the senior chaplain hurried to help me out. Usually, someone would tell me that I simply shouldn't tell them that I had alcohol, alcoholic beverages with me. Since the question was not really about altar wine, but those who brought beverages into the prison for others to consume, so I should, uh, so they told me I should lie and then I would be admitted. If I told the truth, I'd be barred from somebody carrying out the job, carrying out their job, and I'd be barred from the job I came to do. They didn't tell me to, to put my soul in uh, moral peril. They just told me to ignore the question about whether I was carrying any alcohol. In answer to the question, are you bringing alcohol onto the premises? I was to say, no. The guards wouldn't have to make a decision about letting me enter, and no one would have to face the prospect of denying sacraments to anyone. I could come in, do my ministerial work, and everything would just be fine. Lying solved the problems for them. Because, of course, if somebody wanted to go to the mat over what I was doing, I'd be the one to face the consequences. However, since I wasn't going to share the wine with the prisoners, it would be unlikely there'd be any problems. By all means, I should drink the ounce of wine and not leave even a drop in the small bottle I brought in it. That way, as the mass was over, there'd be no proof anything was amiss. Nobody would imagine I'd be penalized by all the threatening language laid out in the, destruction, in the instructions about not bringing alcohol onto the premises. But I could still be banned from coming again because I accepted the responsibility of disobeying the rules. Rules established by institutions indifferent to the needs of the prisoners and the realities of the church. But it was expedient for the people at the guard station and for the ones they reported to, to just have me not tell the truth. Now, this came in different versions. Sometimes I was told, once by the head chaplain, simply to say I wasn't carrying wine in. Other times, when I filled out the questionnaire required of all visitors and I came upon the question about contraband, I was told simply to leave the question blank. And still at other times, I was told to say nothing. Each of these moments were ways in which those in charge were trying to make things work when the actual process and procedures kept things from working. 
It was the expedient workaround solution. We all understand how these things happen. And for the most part, we all want to make uh, the space we need for a clumsy organization and its clumsy procedures to accommodate to a reality it hasn't taken into account. If you've ever tried to fill out an online visa application form, for example, to enter another country, you know what I mean. Often there are a number of duplicate questions that seem to make no sense. In addition, there are often a range of expected answers. If you have an answer outside of this range, the application program won't won't accept it. And since there is no access to consult anyone, you never really know what to do if the question asked has no definitive answer. Those who created the form knew what they wanted and what they considered important. They just have no way of communicating this to the applicant except by the form they've prepared and presented. One time I was trying to help my friend, Father Pruitt, fill out such a form in order to enter India. Over and over again, the form was rejected, but with no explanation given. We went over the information in each answer, trying to figure out why the computer might not have accepted it. Finally, we got to a question about whether he had ever been in military service and what rank he had. He'd put the E5 on the answer, and so I told him to write sergeant. Do you think that's important? He asked. I don't know, I said. Put in general and see if it makes a difference. He put in sergeant. It didn't matter. We never did find out why our applications were never accepted, and there was no one to consult and no one to talk to. So it is with large organizations everywhere. Of course, the outworking of this attitude is the complete disregard of the ethos of the organization. It wants its guidelines observed and honored, and this is accomplished by those who are to, who, who are to be truthful and forthright. But once you're counseled to dissemble, no matter how noble the reason, it builds an environment of game-playing and distrust. Of course, the little lies were for a greater cause, and they were perfectly understandable. And waiting for the central administration to change the policy in a way to accommodate the needs of the Catholic Church and the Catholic prisoners would have kept the sacraments away from them for perhaps months or years. But the erosion of honesty eventually takes its toll. Another lesson to draw from this experience is to know that in a bar of common understanding, there is no wisdom available. That is, the fact that the Catholic Church has celebrated Mass since time immemorial and has not changed its standards on what the celebration entails provides no help or guidance for those who are tasked with making these decisions. If they know this is true, they're not able to act procedurally in any way that their actions would seem to favor their church. Their decisions have to appear neutral compared to a decision, for example, about the use of, say, peyote in some kind of common service, although there is no clear parallel between the two practices. The history or theology or practice of the church bears no weight at all in those organizations. Again, we understand why. Administrators are not in their positions because of their understanding of church history or their appreciation of the finer points of sacramental theology. They have to make their decisions based on some other grounds than church teaching or church practice. The actual ecclesial understanding and practice has to be disfavored no matter how overwhelming it is or how persuasive it might be. In the end, the administrative process makes exceptions for Catholic practice and then braces itself for whatever blowback it might endure. That is, they work at being flexible in the same way a steel beam is, It accepts more and more weight until it breaks, and there's no give in it. Finally, and this may be the most important aspect, we live in a society 
that has no vocabulary for the sacramental. We are, of course, sacramental. Every society is because to be so is an aspect of our humanity. We are sacramental human beings. But we don't have any words in common to inform us about the intersection of our human experience and the promise of the divine. The U.S. is still a Protestant country, and our paucity of a communal vocabulary is one of our inheritance. Let me give you an example. In most of the religious environments around us, the official teaching is that marriage is not a sacrament. It is an arrangement between a man and a woman, conformal to God's law, but it is not regarded as a sign instituted to give grace to those involved in its celebration. Weddings are often dreary affairs with not much more to them than a simple yes to inelegant questions. They are often no more spiritual than than signing the Form 1040 for your income taxes. In official terms, even in many churches, there's not much to it. At the same time, if, say, Oprah awarded somebody $100,000 to celebrate their wedding, everybody knows what it would entail. There'd be an elegant white dress, nice tuxedos, a church with a long aisle and pointed arched stained glass windows, a clergyman or clergywoman in a vestment, the peal of organ music and flowers all around with bridesmaids and groomsmen in the wedding ceremony, and there'd be a gigantic party for everyone afterwards. Such a celebration is written into our cultural understanding of what would make such a moment special and memorable. It's what everyone would expect if there were no constraints involved. But our society would still insist it's nothing spiritual. This great combination of moments and details full of sacramentals would go by without much notice or awareness beyond a kind of mere comment. And we'd end up not saying much about it because it's what we all expect in such a situation. Certainly, we'd never expect anyone to say, it just goes to show you sacrament uh, that marriage is a sacramental moment in which heaven touches earth with the promises of God. In fact, there are scores of clergymen who would say the opposite. And it's because we live in a non-sacramental society. No one can appreciate what we do and no one can say what we expect. And so we walk around mute in such matters, which is what happens when a Catholic priest approaches the gates of a prison with his mass kit. The whole society has no way to appreciate what he's doing and what will go on with the people he's ministering to. Organizations reflect those who create them and staff them. And in this type of organization, there is no room for sacramental celebration, no matter its provenance or its history or its importance. That's the world we live in. The church has a good deal of reflection about this experience. It's summed up under the category of subsidiarity. It's a simple concept with a specialized name. It simply means the best way to meet the collective needs of people is with an organization closest to the level of the people being served. If, for example, a hundred people are displaced from their house by a tornado, the best way to respond to them is with an organization on the spot capable of responding to a hundred people. The principle of subsidiarity would favor a county or a state group, one flexible enough to identify the needs of the people and know where they could get the help necessary to serve them. If there were a hundred houses destroyed involving millions of dollars, then a larger group with more resources would be the most appropriate, but all at its own level. Having a national group headquartered in Chicago responding to a fire in Chickasha would probably not have the same positive outcome as a state group headquartered, say, in Norman. There is a genius to the small organization 
and a flexible response. This is an important element we should hold close, especially as we are tempted to imagine we can be saved from ourselves by those who are strangers to us. But all organizations are challenged to listen, understand, and communicate. The larger they are, the more difficulty they have achieving their ends. The church has the same concern as it strives to be flexible and thorough, while at the same time being consistent and steady. Such a range of attributes is not easy to create. It's not an accident the church commits itself to the Eucharist as the summit of its experience and its purpose. There's no other way than by humbling itself before the presence of Christ for it to remain focused on why it's here and what it's supposed to be. By the way, the Alaska Board of Corrections changed its policy and will now allow priests to carry wine into prisons. It took international news and an international outcry to alter their thinking, which should come as no surprise. Merely the needs of the people to be ministered to is not nearly enough. It takes something else to find the change. We ought to remember that. Back in just a moment. final segment, Faith in Verse, of a poem today called, O God. O God, in my indifference to wonder and beauty, where are you? O Divine One, as I forget my life's work, what will you do? O Holy of Holies, as I walk in front of your tabernacle, what is there in lieu? O Lord of History, as I ignore your crafting hands, what about the Jews? O Sorcerer of Salvation, I who am ignorant of my lostness, will you make me new? O David's hope, in my inconsolable numbness, will you notice my empty pew? O God of endless beginnings, as I stumble through my tired life, will you me renew? O God, whose center is everywhere, will you be as one for me, not two? That's O God.
us are invited at this at all at the same time to live our faith in the world that we find. It's the world that's given to us, the one that we have inherited. And because we've inherited it, it is God's gift to us at the time that we are living. Our temptation is always to imagine we'd be much better off in some other world, or even worse, that if we could just recreate the world that we came from, where things seem to be easier, whether that's the world of our parents, our grandparents, or the world of the, what, the 12th century, we imagine that we could be better at that than we are living our faith in the world now. The truth is we're invited to live our faith now. That's what it means to be faithful. That's what we strive to do here on Living Catholic. I hope you can join us in the weeks to come. Living Catholic is a production of Oklahoma Catholic Radio. To learn more, visit okcr.org.